Blog Talk Radio. Online Speakers Bureau at SpeakerMatch.com. The number to call if you'd like to be a part of the show today, 718-508-9513. That's 718-508-9513. You can also send us an instant message, and we'll be happy to ask our guests any questions you have or pass along comments for Dr. Stephen Cook. He is a biblical scholar, Yale-educated, and for the last two decades plus has been a professor at Virginia Theological Seminary. And the reason that we're bringing in uh, Dr. Cook, who's uh, also a noted author of several books and uh, an in-demand speaker, is to share his thoughts on the, uh, and I'm using italics here, air quotes, thoughts and prayers rhetoric that often follows incidents of tragic gun violence. And this is in the wake of the most recent rash of deadly shootings in El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio. We're going to ask Dr. Cook what what the Bible says about violence, what it says about mental illness. And we'll start, uh, Dr. Cook, by asking you the question I think that's on many people's minds after these horrible tragedies happen. How is it that that a loving, caring God could permit uh, these horrible acts of violence to happen? Welcome to the show and love to get your feedback. Hey, Burke, thank you so much for inviting me. It's a real honor and pleasure to be here, and I just want to say I am just devastated by these 31 deaths and countless injuries that uh, has gone on in El Paso and, and Dayton, and uh, I'm just heartbroken over it, as I'm sure we all are. The only encouraging thing that we're seeing is that finally it seems like people are mobilizing to do something about it besides just prayer and other acts that don't necessarily move move us forward into a better situation. Yeah, at, at times like these, of course, one is going to ask fundamental questions about God. Um, I have two basic thoughts. Do you want to hear them? Absolutely. Okay. Um, well, number one would be, if you read the biblical stories at times of tragedy like this, um, God is really very mournful. I mean, God's emotions and the divine pathos is extraordinarily strong. So I think it's important to remember that God is grieving along with us. And uh, unlike us who can only feel our own individual pain, God is able to feel everybody's pain at once, which magnifies everything incredibly. The other thing to remember is that we don't, if you think about it and puzzle on it, you don't really want a world that's that's automatically safe and beautiful and loving unless people freely enter into it with their own free will. So God can't create a world from scratch where where there's no violence, there's no crime, there's no tragedy. Uh, he can God can only create the the best possible way to get to that world, and that that best possible way is to allow people to mature and grow and to and to live in full into full maturity. Dr. Stephen Cook is our guest today from Virginia Theological Seminary, and 
We wanted to talk with him to get a, a biblical perspective, also a religious scholar uh, uh, perspective on on this this horrible tragedy and how we should all deal with it. And uh, uh, Stephen, can I call you Stephen? Is that okay? That's perfect. All right, Stephen. I I thought it was interesting. I read a, a blog that you had written on Medium, and and it echoed something that uh, Oprah Winfrey said a few days ago in an interview with Extra, and, and I'm going to read you just a little bit of the quote from Oprah, and I thought it was, it was fascinating that it seems to line up a lot with, with what you said. And, and Oprah says, and I quote here, I think what people are missing is a strong moral center. Churches used to do that. It was a central place you could come to, and there was a core center of values about a way of living and being in the world. Until we can return to that, however that is, in whatever form, we will continue to be lost. So, so does Oprah have a point here that that what's missing in the world today is that that churches were a community's strong moral center, and that seems to be going away. I think Oprah has indeed put her finger on something that's quite important. I think practically addressing this issue of of gun violence involves at least churches, synagogues, mosques, and families at every point working to address this situation where community is falling apart and where a sense of reverence for something greater than ourselves, some values and goals that are greater than individual groups or individual mentalities has to be cultivated. So I think that's one of the things if church leaders are asking themselves what to do, if synagogues and congregations of all sorts are asking themselves what to do. We've got to build community. We've got to break down um, the barriers between people coming together, people working together, and people honoring each other, honoring each other's liberty, honoring each other's need to be loved, honoring each other's need to speak the truth. Stephen, you graduated from Yale School of Divinity. Um, you chose a path of, of research and scholarship instead of being ordained as an Episcopalian priest. Um, you've been at this, uh, if, if my math is correct, for almost three decades now and have spent, I'm sure, thousands of hours poring over the Bible. Uh, it looks like with a focus on the Old Testament. So, so I'm curious, for those who are believers, and I guess perhaps for those who are not, what does the Bible really say about about violence? And and I think it, it may surprise a lot of people to know that the Bible is a pretty violent book. But but is there any guidance that that the Bible can give us in terms of how to cope with what's happening today? The Bible is indeed filled with so much violence, and it's both. Uh, asset and a problem. It's an asset because we live in a violent world. There's no denying that. And because the Bible's so realistic about violence of all sorts, catastrophic violence, major uh, threats of violence, it's really helpful that we have a bunch of scriptures that address that directly. Um, some would argue, famous philosophers like Rene Girard, that Mimetic violence is at the heart of all of our problems today. And uh, yes, the Bible 
deals straight on with with violence in a number of different ways. It's a huge concern for God, and God takes a lot of that violence into God's self and suffers because of it, because it's such a central issue. So it seems that this whole notion of, you know, in, in many churches who are sending our thoughts and prayers to the victims in insert city here uh, and, and praying about this gun violence is sort of all that, that ever seems to happen. And obviously it's an insufficient answer. You say that, that just crying out to God in prayer is in no way, shape, or form a substitute for doing something. But what is that something? You know, if, you know, some people say, oh, you know, uh, you know, we need to abolish gun rights. And, and the other side uh, goes in the, the complete, you know, other direction that prayer doesn't do any good. So from your perspective, as somebody who teaches pastors how to pastor and how to counsel people, uh, you know, what's, what's the answer? Is there some sort of middle ground there? I do think that the solution, or at least working at getting a better handle on this huge problem of violence and gun violence, does involve um, stopping this partisan fighting back and forth. Um, it may be good sound bites to get elected for the Democratic candidates to be blaming this all on Trump. Um, and it's not to say that Trump isn't aggravating things, but a, 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 a battle between parties, between the red and the blue sides, is not going to solve the problem. We need to find common ground, and we need to step back a little bit, at least as a, as a seminary type of, of thinking, to think a little bit more theologically about, about the problems. Dr. Stephen Cook is our special guest today on Blog Talk Radio, the Burke Allen Show, as we talk about these uh, most recent uh, incidents of mass shootings, gun violence in El Paso and Dayton. If you'd like to weigh in, our number is 718-508-9513. We would love to get your comments, your instant message as well. So, Stephen, you're a father. You have a teenager at home. Um, 13 years old, yes. And, you know, so you've got to figure out how to talk not only to your own 13-year-old about this, but presumably, you know, all these college students that you teach at the Virginia Theological Seminary about, you know, when they become full-fledged pastors, when they get their, their degrees, how they should talk to young people about what's happening. I know there are no magic bullets. I know there's, there's no... You know, top secret answer, but I would love to get your perspective and your thoughts on on how to talk to young people about this world that we live in today. Absolutely. And the first thing is exactly as you say, we have to talk about it. We can't skirt the issue. Religious institutions cannot or should not simply think it's too dangerous or you're treading on um, thin ice to, to raise these questions these questions, it has to be talked about, but talking in prayer is not enough. We've had the conversations, we've said the prayers, and we still have gun violence and gun massacres going on. So churches, synagogues, seminaries have to do much more. That's not to say that prayer is is worthless, but you take the example, for uh, to take one example, the prophet Jeremiah, 
people were worshiping and praying very seriously in the temple, but society was going to hell, if you were, if you will. And uh, he, mm-hmm. the prophet Jeremiah, stormed into the temple like a bull into a china shop and said, "It's not enough just to keep going with these mantras. Temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord. You've got to actually work for human transformation. Um, prayer is a part of that, but you've also got to get to work." Um, not only maturing yourselves as a as a community and as a as a people, but also individually. And there's there's things that we can do both at the community level and press for the government to do that I think we could all come together on, um, whether you're on the blue side or the red side, and push forward. Stephen Cook is chatting with us today about the mass shooting, gun violence. Uh, in El Paso and Dayton, and of course previously in houses of worship, in mosques, in uh, the synagogue, in in Pittsburgh, in the Baptist Church in Texas. So, talk to me a little bit about that. Is there is there a move afoot in the religious community to secure places of worship? Is that an active conversation that's happening? I know there was some talk in in Texas after that horrible tragedy there uh, about arming parishioners you know what what sort of guidance uh, if any are you guys giving your your pastors in terms of of securing religious institutions well first of all let me affirm that it is a dangerous time there's no really safe place anymore even schools and synagogues and mosques are not are not safe places and just across the street from where i'm sitting Across from Virginia Seminary, there's a very um, beautiful and large Jewish synagogue, and they've had to put up big concrete barriers every three or four feet around their structure just to prevent some sort of cement truck or some um, big U-Haul loaded with dynamite or fertilizer to drive in. So there's a real concern, but I think it's not – our culture is not at a time where we need more – special groups to insulate themselves. I think it's a time where we need to be coming together, finding the highest common ground, not the the lowest and safest common ground. So I'd rather spend my time teaching the seminarians here about how to work on human mutuality, how to break down barriers, whatever they are, education, class, race, sexual orientation, the list goes on. The most important thing is to get in line with what God is doing, if we want to think theologically. And what God is doing is trying to work on human mutuality. You mentioned before the culture's loss of reverence, the culture's loss of a sense of common ground working together to treat everybody as being in the image of God. I think that's what we have to get in line with, and that's where our energy should be, not on producing the safest possible places for minority groups such as Christians to to gather. We're talking with Stephen Cook today. He's a uh, longtime professor and instructor at Virginia Theological Seminary, author of several books on the Bible. He is a guy that can help us interpret what the Bible might have to say about this. And when we come back after the break, and we're going to take a short break, I want to talk to Dr. Cook about uh, the aspect of mental health and how it is played into this. And uh, the president has certainly uh, pointed the finger at this being a mental health crisis, as have other political leaders. What does the Bible say about mental health and what is his insight into that? 
Back with more with Dr. Stephen Cook right after this on the Burke Allen Show. Hang on. Over 14 million people witnessed his emotional story of survival and triumph on national television. I've been doing this now for so long, like ever since I was a kid. Millions more voted him their favorite in a landslide win. The winner is... And now, you can be a part of the experience live. Landau Eugene Landau Eugene Murphy Jr. Ain't that a kick in the head? You're America's Got Talent winner. I've got you. Landau Eugene Murphy Jr. Landau, Eugene Murphy Jr. in concert Saturday night, August 10th in Hollywood, California at the Catalina. Visit LandauMurphyJR.com for tickets and more information. Hey, thank you so much for taking part of your day to listen to the Burke Allen Show on the Blog Talk Radio Network and our podcast all over the world. If you're listening live, our number is 718-508-9513. You can also send your uh, questions and comments for our guest, Dr. Stephen Cook, into us on the Instant Messaging app, and we'll be happy to ask those. Um, Dr. Cook, by the way, is the uh, author of several books on the Bible. He's been at this for about three decades, written several books that are used as, as text and teaching tools at seminaries all over the country, I'm sure all over the world. Um, I have to ask you about the mental health aspect of this. The president and other political leaders have said, look, this is not a gun issue. This is a mental health issue. And uh, pastors, uh, religious leaders of all uh, varieties often deal with mental health issues. And I wonder if the Bible gives any guidance at all about mental health and and what your own thoughts are as to how uh, mental health in this country plays into this this rash of shootings. Oh, my. These are excellent questions, Burke. Um, And scholars have spilled oceans of ink trying to figure out the relationship of psychology to the scriptures. Let me let me just start with a short answer and maybe let you probe me further if I'm not getting at the question. But sure. I think the place to start is not to allow any red herrings to divert us from the real problem. Yes, if you uh, gun down scores of people, dozens of people, there's a mental health issue in retrospect. But uh, whether one can predict on the basis of a mental health examination whether one will do that, that's much more problematic. We don't have any data to support that. And I'm in in favor of evidence-based approaches, evidence-based movement forward. The statistics don't show that countries with less mental health problems um, have less gun violence or countries with more mental health problems have more gun violence problems. What the data clearly shows, and I think right and left can agree on that, on this, is that countries that have more guns in circulation have more uh, horrendous acts of gun violence. We've got the data there. 
So I think that we can talk about mental health, and I think we should. My wife is a psychological therapist with um, all the all the necessary degrees, but I, I don't want that to divert us from the central problem, which I think we can all agree is that there's simply too many guns in circulation. I'm not saying that the solution is for the government to take a, to um, insist that no one has a right for guns. I'm a big um, fan of of liberty, individual liberty, but programs like uh, buying guns back which doesn't hurt anyone's rights, but gets some of these guns out of circulation. I think these are the things that we have to focus on and not get distracted by Donald Trump's rhetoric here. Stephen Cook is our guest today. He teaches pastors-to-be at Virginia Theological Seminary about how to pastor uh, to their congregations. And so I'm curious, as you talk about gun violence, Stephen, what do you tell these, these pastors in training in terms of guidance on how to talk to their congregations about tough subjects like this, about guns, for example. And, uh, you know, that's got to be a, a polarizing topic from the pulpit. You know, pretty much you're going to have half the folks uh, in one camp, half the folks in the other. So, so how do you or do you guide these pastors and how to thread that needle and whether or not they should talk about things like this from the pulpit? Yes. Um, in some ways, I'm a little bit of a dangerous professor at a seminary because I tell people not to skirt sensitive issues. Um, if you look at the great figures of the Bible, like Jeremiah or Amos or Isaiah, any of the prophets, they weren't primarily worried about where their next paycheck was coming from. They had ideals that they stood for. They had a revelation from God that the world was not right and that they needed to step up and talk. Um, so I don't think you go into this job of ministry if your primary worry is job security, although I'm not saying you don't have to worry about that. But uh, the other thing I tell them is the, the church, the synagogue, the mosque are not primarily political institutions. If that's all we are, then people would be better going to schools of political science or running for office. The genuine and authentic job of religious institutions is to think theologically, to move beyond politics. So it's not just a matter of urging people to side with the red uh, states or with blue states, but to, to try to move above those and to think about what God wants done in these situations. I, you know, Stephen, I'm, I'm no biblical scholar. Fortunately, we have you and we can uh, refer to you and defer to you on on big questions like this, but it's my understanding that, that many people who read the Bible um, believe that it's all predestined. It's all preordained. And so I, I personally have a tough time believing that these mass murderers are you know, preordained to do that. In other words, that, that all happens while they're in the womb. I tend to lean towards this happens, you know, later in life based on a variety of circumstances that surround in in most cases these very troubled young men that that commit these heinous crimes um is it all preordained or are these these uh these mass murderers formed in the womb are they formed in the crib what does the bible tell us about that yeah these are very excellent questions burke and we've got to say up front that 
well-educated, legitimate theological thinkers differ on these things. I'm a Bible guy. I study the scriptures. And if you read the scriptural stories, what you see is not this uh, unmoved mover of Greek philosophy or Platonism, and you don't see a deterministically preordained world or individual, but you see essentially a very vulnerable God who's made God's self vulnerable so that humans can have space to be authentically real, to have to make real decisions, to have the real freedom to, to choose to love or not to love, to, to treat others first or to treat themselves first. And because God has made that space, has retracted or pulled back, if you will, that gives human beings a lot of room to maneuver. Um, and because of that, life is always something of a chess game. Uh, God is a really good chess player, and when, when people really mess up or communities or societies really mess up, God has plans, backup plans put into place, but they're not necessarily the best plans that God could have implemented. I, um, I'd i love to do a full show with you at some point on, on the phenomena <laughs> of social media and how that has has changed things. You know, we talked earlier in the program about Oprah's comments uh, on the church at, at one time, not too long ago, becoming sort of the, the moral center of the community. Well, it seems the community now, Stephen lives in, in the world of social media and Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And just a few days ago, I uh, in, uh, popped up on my, one of my social media feeds, someone who opined that, look, this, this really is, as ludicrous as this sounds, these are not my words, this came up in my feed, this really is a God thing, that if you look at the Old Testament, you see that that, that God, uh, you know, is a vengeful God, and that he, when things got out of hand, he flooded the whole world, save for Noah and the animals and Noah's family, and uh, that, that, you know, there's the, the biblical story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and maybe this is all God's way of correcting a world gone astray. Now, to me, that sounds like, frankly, nutty rhetoric, but those stories are in the Bible. They happen, so what say you? You know, it's very hard to be a biblical scholar these days. Uh, the Hebrew book scriptures, the Old Testament, get such a bad rap. I was watching a Stephen King movie <laughs> the other day, and the monsters started appearing and uh, the first thing they say is, oh, no, we've got an Old Testament situation. Um, for many people, that just flies over the head. But for somebody who's spent 30 years working hard at this stuff and learned all these ancient languages, Ugaritic, Akkadian, Aramaic, Hebrew, um, it, hits, it hits home. But, uh, again, thinking theologically, you can't separate the God of the testaments in that way if you think think theologically jesus couldn't possibly just have started something new in the roman period because theologically the third person of the trinity if you've got the father the holy spirit and the son the son was around with the father from the beginning of genesis so there's a huge theological continuity there it's not like jesus only had a uh, input a nonviolent input starting with the New Testament. Um, and also people misread the New Testament. It, uh, when you start to see all the different um, ways that violence plays a role in Jesus' ministry, and it's not hard once you read closely to see that Jesus is wrestling hard with violence and 
and uh, is affirming things like the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, you've got to rethink that kind of simplistic Old Testament, New Testament division. It just doesn't work, and it just uh, makes one look silly because it shows that one hasn't read either Testament. You uh, you clearly know an awful lot about this. It's, it's like the old saying, you know, I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. You actually have, have walked the walk and talked the talk, and, and looking at your biography, it's just fascinating. I mean, you've spent time in archaeological digs over in, in uh, the biblical world and have studied this stuff for, for many decades. You know it way better than most, and, and I appreciate your humbleness and your graciousness to, to be on the program. If there are issues that come up and questions that we have, would you consider coming back on the show again to, uh, to enlighten us and, and share your thoughts with us? Well, I don't know how much enlightenment I can bring, but I'm always honored and delighted to come on the show, Burke. I really appreciate your, your having me here. Thank you for your time today. And if you want to find out more about Dr. Stephen Cook, uh, his books are available uh, online at Amazon.com, and you can visit his website as well. From our studios in Washington, D.C., this is the Burke Allen Show, brought to you by our friends at Speaker Match, the world's largest online speakers bureau. Wherever you go, whatever you do, get out there and make it a great day. Thanks for listening.